Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. How can you know if you're saved? How does one receive the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit? Can a Christian lose his salvation? Find out the answers to these challenging questions in our study of Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 25. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, we're going to read down through verse 16 for our study today. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in that city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God." And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In our last study, we saw the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ expand beyond Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and into Samaria by the providence of God and the obedience of Christ's disciples. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes there with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. That's again Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. We noted an important sequence in the conversion of the Samaritans to Christ, which is worth repeating here. First, they saw the miracles and wonders performed by Philip and discovered through these that God was with him, to use the words of Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 2. Then, because of the respect they gained for him from seeing the miracles, they listened to the things spoken by Philip and heeded them or responded to them by believing and being baptized, verse 12. And after they obeyed the gospel or heeded Philip's preaching, they had the great joy that always characterizes a life transformed by the power of Jesus. In the book of Acts, there are several cases of conversion. At this point in our study, we're about to encounter a succession of them. And then again, we'll see more in chapter 16. 
Now, many of the people who become Christians in Luke's record are men and women who, before their conversion, had a noble and pious character that demonstrated itself on the outside. Their lives manifest the good and honest heart that Jesus called the good ground in which the kingdom of God flourishes. They were active in seeking righteousness. We're sure that they sinned at some point because the Bible calls them sinners. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23, even those who appear externally righteous. But in these cases, we don't know the kinds of sins these people committed And everything we see about them is what we would call good. So we might wonder if they even needed to be converted, were it not for what we see and hear in the book of Acts. Yet in Samaria, we find people who are perhaps more relatable to most of us, people who were clearly living in sin before God prior to their turning to Jesus Christ. And to become Christians constituted a radical shift in their thinking and living. These people were involved in witchcraft and occultism, as we would call it today. Verse 9 says, But there was a certain man named Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. In our last study, we argued that sorcery in the Bible is a form of deception. In fact, the word astonished in verse 11, describing the effect that his works had on the community, is translated bewitched, which carries the idea of deluding or deceiving in the old King James Version, and the original word can carry the the concept of confounding people to the point that they're not thinking clearly anymore about the things that they see and hear. Well, Simon was compelling and convincing in his art so that the whole community, even the most educated and powerful people, were won over by him. And Luke says that he claimed he was someone great which was a common expression for those who claimed to be the Messiah at that point in time. Acts chapter 5 and verse 36, we see something like it. And the people were saying, this man is the great power of God. That's a remarkable statement. The American Standard Version words it this way. This man is that power of God which is called great. Gareth Reese says that the idea was he was an archangel who had become incarnate. Uh, Justin Martyr understood it to mean that he claimed to be God himself in the flesh. Now, how a man could reach this level of arrogance is maybe difficult for many of us to imagine, but perhaps the teachings about Jesus' divine nature had reached this area already. He'd preached in Samaria. He had amazed people through his own teachings, And maybe Simon was aware of those beliefs circulating about the countryside, and he claimed essentially to be himself the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because of his trickery, there were many people who were believing him and following him. 
Now really, this is not so unusual to us. Many of us have seen in our lifetimes numerous charismatic leaders who placed themselves just this high, forming cultic followings, claiming to be Jesus, or perhaps even greater than Jesus, amassing followers, building institutions and organizations, getting money and power. Often there's all kinds of immorality and abuse that come from situations like this. And this was the situation in Samaria. It was very grim, very terrible. But as the beautiful lyrics by Oswald Smith so succinctly state, then Jesus came. He came in the preaching of his disciple. And when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory, for all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Luke says, When they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. In baptism, their old selves were put to death. They were freed from their former mastery. Their sins were washed away, and they were given new life in Jesus Christ. Now picking up in verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. There are some things the Bible records that are nearly more amazing than the miracles, and this seems to be one. It is remarkable enough to see the devout adherence to the Samaritan cult of Simon break free from their old delusions and come to Jesus, and Luke emphasizes that this was because the contrast was just so remarkable between Simon's fraudulent magic and Jesus' real power over the universe that he created. But then, the cult leader, the great deceiver and blasphemer himself, is converted. I find this passage absolutely beautiful and personally thrilling. But unfortunately, almost every commentator will disparage it and claim that it was not a real conversion because of what follows. So a typical explanation is that Simon had only a superficial faith. He appeared to believe, and he convinced Philip, therefore Philip baptized him, but it was just more deception, like his sorceries before. I reject this interpretation for a number of reasons. One, which was well stated by McGarvey, is that the report we have of Simon's faith did not come from Philip, but from Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other cases, when someone was doing something under pretense and insincerely, Luke reveals it as a part of his narrative work. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, the Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. 
But he, that is the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, other than Jesus and the lawyer, it's likely that no one present knew the man's intentions when he asked that last question. It could have been sincere, but Luke informs to his readers that the man was wanting to justify himself. Now, similarly, in Acts chapter 5, Luke exposes in his narrative the surreptitious dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira before Peter openly rebukes them. Then there's the case of the Apostle John informing us that Judas's protest against the woman anointing Jesus with precious ointment was not as it appeared because he cared for the poor, but because he carried the money bag and he used to take what was put into it. However, there is no indication here that there was anything but real belief. Simon himself also believed, Luke says. So a second objection is that his belief was in the miracles of Philip rather than the name of Jesus. These commentators focus on the statements that he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done and that he continued with Philip as though he became a disciple of Philip rather than of Christ. But if this is true, we might just as easily cast doubt on the conversions of all the Samaritans. All of them paid attention to Philip because of his miracles. The Bible says the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And note that Luke says that they heeded the things spoken by Philip. But that doesn't mean that their faith was in him and not in Christ. Their faith was in the things he spoke about Christ. And Simon himself also believed. That is, he believed in the same way and in the same things, we should say in the same person, they had. And his belief led him to be baptized. Now Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And in the absence of any reason to doubt it happened just as Luke says it did, we are only left to conclude that Simon was saved. And how amazing! What glory to Jesus Christ, who not only takes away the disciples of his opponents and adversaries, but he takes the opponents and adversaries themselves, all enemies, are brought under his feet by his incomprehensible power. Verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. There are several important expressions here that we need to work through in order to understand what was happening. Luke first tells us that the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. While Philip was not a formal missionary, as we might say, he had not been sent out on a special journey by a congregation, rather he was among the disciples who were scattered from the persecution, yet the apostles retained their authoritative and vital position among God's people even as the community grew beyond their direct supervision in the city of Jerusalem. It was clearly possible for any Christian to preach Christ and make disciples. 
and that was now happening in many places. But there were some things that only the apostles could do. It was the task of the apostles to bear personal witness to the resurrection of Christ and to confirm that the teachings and works and qualities ascribed to him were real, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, Jesus said that ultimately that was going to be accomplished through their word, John 17, 20, especially the written word of those who were commissioned to produce gospels and epistles and other writings, John 20, verses 30 and 31. But at this point in time, there were as of yet no Christian scriptures. They had not been written yet. They had not even begun to be written yet. And those who continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, as Acts 2.42 describes primitive Christians, did so by being in the presence of the apostles as much as they possibly could. What then would become of the church now? When it is spreading across a territory so vast that 12 men could not possibly be present with the majority of it at any given time, and those 12 men anyway have remained back in the city of Jerusalem. Well, to this end, the Spirit gave other gifts to the churches, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and diversities of gifts and ministries and activities, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, to one was given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10. Paul says that these supernatural gifts were given to the churches for the equipping of the saints and to carry the people of Jesus on to maturity until a certain level of completeness in the knowledge of Jesus Christ had come through the teaching of those who had the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Now, I believe that as we continue through the New Testament, we will find a clear message that this completeness came through the culmination of the body of Christian Scripture. When that was finished, the people of Jesus now had what they needed for evangelists and pastors and teachers to fully establish the kingdom of Christ anywhere in the world without any kind of miraculous endowments, so that, as Paul wrote, tongues and prophecy and the word of knowledge and these other things could pass away. Yet, at this point in the history of the church, that completeness had not come. These gifts of the Spirit were indispensable to the life of the churches where the apostles were not personally present. This need had in fact already begun to manifest in Jerusalem, so that in Acts 6, about three years after the church's establishment, we find men like Stephen, who had received at least some of these gifts and are working miracles and performing signs and wonders along with the apostles. Philip, clearly, was of the same class and character. He had received these gifts. He also worked miracles, and now these gifts are needed for the new congregations in Samaria. So when the apostles heard about the growth of the church here, and we may necessarily infer that they heard about it because it was reported to them to seek their special assistance, they sent Peter and John to them. Even as far back as Matthew 10, 
we find the apostles operating in pairs, and this dual or group ministry characterizes the ideal in the book of Acts for all kinds of work in the church. And when Peter and John had come down, the Bible says they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we want to be very attentive here. First, consider the reason for the apostles' coming. We have correctly identified that they came so that the Samaritan Christians might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, whatever the reception of the Holy Spirit is in this passage, it cannot be anything connected with salvation from sin. To thus interpret it is to confound the whole narrative and to discredit the reports of Luke throughout the book. These people had believed and been baptized, and great joy followed. That is the consistent picture of true conversion and salvation in the whole book of Acts. Whatever relationship one must sustain with the Holy Spirit to be a Christian comes immediately with baptism in water, according to Acts 2, 38 and 39. And these people had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, they had that to be sure. Second, whatever the reception of the Holy Spirit was, in this case, it was something externally visible, not merely internally felt. The esteemed Dr. Augustus Neander cannot be correct when he says in his book, The History and Planting of the Training of the Church by the Apostles, they had not yet attained the consciousness of a vital communion with Christ whom Philip preached, nor yet to the consciousness of divine personal life. The indwelling of the Spirit was as yet something foreign to them, known only by the wonderful operations which they saw taking place around them. Note that Neander distinguishes between the consciousness of divine life and personal communion with Jesus, which we think would be the cause of the great joy that already characterized them, from the operations of the Spirit which they saw. And yet, whatever was given on this occasion was something that other people could see, according to Acts 8 and verse 18. Thus, even though the text is not explicitly stated, it must be concluded that the reception of the Holy Spirit in this passage refers to the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. These saved people did not have these miraculous gifts. Were it not for this apostolic visit, seemingly they would not have them. And that supports the conclusion that miraculous gifts are neither necessary for nor indicative of salvation. There is no evidence that these people all spoke with tongues, for example, and we cannot find any just reason to call this a Samaritan Pentecost, as some scholars are so eager to do. These gifts of the Spirit were not for the salvation or spiritual confidence of the individuals who received them, but for the assistance and equipping of the body during this time of incompleteness. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and Ephesians 4 and verse 12. In our next study, we will consider more of the details of how the gifts of the Spirit were actually given and a troublesome but deeply meaningful crisis 
that arose in the church in Samaria that has caused a great deal of confusion and disagreement among Bible readers through the years. For now, we rest in the important conclusions we have thus far reached. The kingdom of God has spread to Samaria. Men and women, even those deeply deceived and ensnared in the kingdom of Satan, even those who were themselves deceivers and abusers and oppressors, heard the message of Jesus, they believed it, they were baptized, and great joy in the Holy Spirit followed. Then the work of King Jesus continued to root and ground and bless his people to further the ends of the grand purposes of God the Father. The kingdom is spreading. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and obey.